two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today is part two of the spicy reading of the Crystal Var vision paper titled Next Generation Digital Government Architecture, version 1.0b, dated March 2020. Now, for those of you who don't know, Crystal Var is the chief technology officer for the government of Estonia, and his white paper is often cited as a benchmark for what government as a platform is all about. So without further ado, here I go. 4.0, from monoliths to event-driven microservice architecture. Complexities in describing Estonian digital government architecture in comprehensible scale is a challenge. But despite fragmentation of technology between administration sectors, at an architectural level, there are many similarities. This section is split based on evolutionary steps of software architecture and their relation to digital government, monolithic architecture, service-oriented architecture, and X-Road that are present in all administration sectors today. Despite numerous efforts across administration sectors, digital government suffers from multiple risks of single point of failure, both from infrastructure as well as service side. Multiple services either require the existence of other services, such as digital government population registry, and fail without or end up replicating entire registries to handle such a risk. Tight and depending coupling of systems is a problem everywhere. As mentioned previously, reuse is another issue that needs addressing. And even when there is a desire to reuse services from another administration sector to save time and cost, reuse is universally low between administration sectors due to the complexity of adoption of said services. Majority of e-services are monolithic, which means that they have been built as a single software system that is intended to function as a whole, delivering very specific functionality to that original administration sector. Multiple concepts are proposed to solve and address the aforementioned issues from microservices and event-driven architecture to further developments of X-Road as well as fact registries as a potential to simplify and streamline both archiving and backup solutions. Moving on to 4.1, a section titled Monoliths. Majority of digital government services that are deployed and running today are in monolithic stacks of software. Information systems and software has been traditionally built as monoliths, which means that the vast complexity of business logic data, and its use as well as user interface ends up being a single whole. And here, um, Crystal has presented us with an image which can be viewed as image 
0.0 in the description below. Many software developers attempt to mitigate the risks of monolithic software by building it in a modular manner. Due to monolithic nature, it is also difficult to reuse parts of the software, even if the software is developed as modules. Modular monoliths allow the IT development team to develop large-scale software, keeping business functionalities apart from one another in separate modules, which is a healthy idea. But reuse of those modules is nearly impossible unless the core software framework is the same. And even then, this is difficult, as in complex information system, business domain specifics are often leaking into each module, making module reuse difficult, even when the underlying software framework is the same. But monoliths are an attractive software architecture for an e-service even in the year 2020, and it is short-sighted for a software architect to automatically consider every monolith bad. Monoliths are much quicker to set up and develop and easier to maintain and operate than the alternative. They are easier to get up and running and to test business hypotheses, and many argue that if a business case is small, it is actually better to develop it as a monolith. In public digital government, monoliths carry with them multiple risks that are difficult to avoid and directly impact how quickly a software stack can be defined as bad legacy. This is because majority government services are larger than a small business case and require integrations with other systems across digital government. 1. Monolithic systems are tightly coupled which means that in order to change part of a monolithic system, you need to have a relative understanding of the whole. This is perfectly fine during the initial development cycle when the team is fully aware of the majority of the whole stack. But as time passes, this awareness will definitely get lost, especially if personnel changes and even more so when development partners change entirely. Number two. One part of monolithic software breaks. It impacts all service functionalities within the monolith. This means that changes in database structure can break functionalities that you may not even be aware of due to the vast scope of the system. This also increases the load in software testing as all tests have to encapsulate monolith as a whole. Number three. Monolithic software is usually written in a single programming language, or often too if including front-end user interface, and using a single database backend. If a certain programming language becomes less popular, or database licenses become more expensive, this notably increases the cost in managing that system. This also means that the whole software is susceptible to security problems or selected technologies. Number four, monolithic systems are very difficult to scale for performance. If a functional part of the monolith is under a heavy load, then the whole system needs to be scaled for those maximum peaks, 
even during downtime when the performance requirements are exponentially lower. This means increased costs for infrastructure. Cloud technologies cannot assist here either, as monoliths are not designed to run with multiple instances. Number five, most monolithic systems can, at most, go through one or two additional development cycles before further development becomes inconvenient and engineering teams begin thinking about rewriting everything. This is because additional developments frequently don't follow original development patterns in architecture, making new developments more like patches and injections to existing software stack. This increases the complexity of the system and makes it notably more difficult for another development team to understand a monolith. Number six, there's a good principle that says if a system becomes more complex than it is able to fit inside an engineer's head, then the system is more complex than it should be. Not having a comprehensive understanding of information system architecture is a risk for further developments. Number seven, monoliths can lead to vendor locking in both technology as well as partners. It is difficult to start implementing new technologies or features in another programming language or ordering developments from another partner who is not familiar with the system. Number eight, it is very hard to replace parts of a monolith without having to refactor the whole system in entirety, even if the monolith is developed in a modular manner. Number nine, handling every single risk mentioned above becomes exponentially more difficult over time, leading to an inevitable situation where technical stakeholders conclude that it is better to simply start over from scratch. And lastly, number 10. Digital government also faces an issue of vendor locking, as multiple software solutions rely on both Java and Oracle stacks, as well as VMware, on the infrastructure side. While this is addressed in newer developments with focus to use open source software stacks, many existing systems are still deeply rooted in expensive vendor systems and due to those systems being monolithic, are incredibly expensive to reuse, not only due to the aforementioned reasons, but also due to the license costs involved. Despite all that, monolithic software remains popular. In fact, a notable software architect and consultant, Martin Fowler, has mentioned that despite the evolution of software architecture, Monoliths and Monoliths First strategy is continuously popular. And if you are building a system for singular short-term purpose, such as marketing websites or a disposable blog, can be the right call. But as Jeff Bezos has said, the first decision when building a system is to decide whether your decision is a one-way or two-way door. Often, once you start building a monolith, be sure if you are making a two-way door decision, as if you are not managing it properly, it is difficult to break it up later on down the line. We're moving on to the next section, 4.2, service-oriented 
architecture. But while the majority of digital government services in Estonia are built as monolithic stacks of software, digital government stacked as a whole is not monolithic and instead follows service-oriented architecture pattern in an abstract sense. Evolutionary idea behind service-oriented architecture is not originating from engineering directly, but instead from philosophy, most notably computational theory of mind and theory of black box. The core idea is that something of value, such as a service, can be observed as a black box, where you provide it with specific input data and it computes and processes without you being able to observe what it does, and it returns you a set of output data. And again, Christo has provided us with an image, which you can look at in the description below. This one is titled Image 2.0. In service-oriented architecture, this language and interface of communication is called an API, Application Programming Interface. While the history of APIs go way back to the 1970s, it wasn't until 2000 that APIs and their use exploded through the use of the internet as web APIs became a core part of service-oriented architecture. Web-based systems started integrated web-based APIs, creating a network of distributed functionality. Essentially, the black box became a network of black boxes communicating with one another across the internet, reusing services without having to develop every single business functionality from the beginning. This itself is based on the concept of distributed cognition, which essentially says that smarts of anything can consist of multiple autonomous parts that are working together. Service-oriented architecture pattern has many success stories, starting from the year 2002. After the dot-com bubble burst, many surviving companies realized that reinventing the wheel and trying to build everything by themselves in a monolithic manner into your own company is an impossibly expensive problem. Most notable example that came after the dot-com bubble is the controversial API mandate written and internally published by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, a computer scientist by background. This mandate clarified multiple principles, including, and the following is paraphrased by Crystal here, one, every team starts to offer their services strictly over APIs. Two, teams are only allowed to integrate and use services over those APIs. Three, Every other form of integration is disallowed. Direct linking, direct database connections and calls, shared memory and file systems and backdoors of every kind. Number four, every service has to be developed following the principle that an internal user is as safe or as unsafe as an external user without exceptions. And lastly, number five, anyone doesn't do this will be fired. While harsh at the time of publishing, it led to a major transformation of two to three years of Amazon technology stack and services ending up as the business behemoth they are today. 
When visiting Amazon online stores today, it may not be obvious that the majority of services that Amazon provides, including items that they are selling, are not actually on Amazon's own warehouses or are not actually updated by Amazon's employees. Majority of what we see on Amazon today is a vast array of API integration to other stores and platforms. With the popularization of service-oriented architecture, another new feature emerged, a requirement of a central middleware gateway, service bus, or a road of sorts, so that those web APIs could communicate with one another. Over time, it became difficult to tell if a service is making requests to a middleman or the service API directly, but that is to be expected. Two popular web API standards and styles emerged from making API requests. SOAP, Simple Object Access Protocol, and REST, representational state transfer. The key benefits of emergence of these architectural styles was that the language between systems became independent from the programming languages and databases, just like with the example of the aforementioned black box. As long as you understood the language, you were able to use any API, regardless of what is actually running inside the black box. Of the two styles, REST has emerged as more popular due to the ease of adoption with web browsers and mobile clients. The concept of API management and API gateways are also widely popular when implementing service architecture principles. An API gateway essentially builds a wall around a set of systems and APIs can only be accessed over the API gateway. A high-level abstract view on service-oriented architecture is as follows. Again, Crystal has provided us with an image here. You can have a look at it in the description below. It will be called Image 3.0. Service-oriented architecture carries with it multiple benefits over monoliths. One, you can replace anything behind an API. You can replace database or programming languages as long as your system still understands and is able to respond to those API calls. Nothing breaks for your API consumer. Two, you can publish an API long before the system itself is ready and developed. This means that you can mock parts of your software functionality and your consumer can already start testing their own integration with it even while actual functionality is still being developed. Number three, you can scale up a performance of a single API stack without having to scale up the whole architecture. This means that infrastructure management will be far more cost-effective. Number four, you can set your APIs behind an API gateway and make requests to the API gateway. This gives immense freedom to replace APIs themselves in the background or provide multiple versions of APIs. API Gateway can also take care of logging and user authentication as well as request limits without having to have this logic in every single API. That being said, there are still problems that are difficult to avoid. Number one. Service-oriented architectures that use API gateways need to be careful because critical business logic may leak into gateways and can, if not well-governed, become a monolith in their own right. Number two, 
Central API Gateway is a complexity in its own right, as it requires permission and privilege management, authentication, logging, redirections, and load balancing, and internal networking and routing. Number three, API gateways can become performance bottlenecks and require careful load balancing. Number four, API gateways can also create a false sense of security for services that are running behind the gateway. What this means is that if the gateway becomes compromised, so does every service that the gateway is intended to protect. Amazon was not the only company to make such a change towards service-oriented architecture. Salesforce also adopted SOA to great success in 2007. And by today, service-oriented architecture is widely adopted among large-scale organizations as a good compromise to manage some coupling with the organization. Many of the service-oriented architecture principles also ended up as part of Estonian digital government stack. Most notably, in public sector developments, the term API first was evangelized by digital government architects. API first meant that in any kind of information system design, it is important that the back end and front end are separated and decoupled and communicate first hand over API. While implementation of this principle was low, it has increased over time. We're now moving on to the next section. 4.3, XROAD. Most known example of service-oriented architecture in Estonian digital government stack is technically XROAD. The name of XROAD originates from the idea of a network of roads and crossroads that connect different information systems between one another. Originally launched in late 2001, XROAD has been fundamental to Estonian digital government success, but by today, XROAD is not an Estonian-only solution. It is used in various scale by Finland, Iceland, and the Faroe Islands, and is co-developed together with Finland under Nordic Institute for Interoperability Solutions. Iceland will also become a NIIS member from 2020. XROAD is a single solution to connect information systems of vastly different technology stacks with one another between multiple administration sectors, somewhat similarly to what an API gateway would do in service-oriented architecture. However, XROAD itself doesn't have a central API gateway. Most implementations of XROAD integrate SOAP APIs due to SOAP being popularized in early 2000s. REST is supported by XROAD from 2019 and a wider implementation of REST is planned from 2020 onwards by XROAD users. That being said, the architecture of XROAD is slightly more advanced from classic service-oriented architecture. Every information system that accesses XROAD has a required component of a security server which in many ways acts like a local API gateway that is only intended for XROAD communication, essentially a four-corner model. Security server of XROAD is essentially an application-level gateway. While in classic service-oriented architecture, the requests are made through a single gateway, 
In X-Road, the communication happens between two separate secure gateways. This gives both more control and security to both sides of the transaction without requiring a central single point gateway that becomes a risk dependency for all. Here Crystal has offered us an image to describe what he's been talking about. You can find that image uh, in the description as item uh, 4.0. As can be seen, many principles are similar to service-oriented architecture. You could have, and in Estonia's case there are, multiple black boxes behind X-Road security servers, validating requests, logging requests, and sharing data in a secure manner. X-Road is one of the main reasons why Estonia has been able to be this fast in growing their digital e-services across the whole nation without requiring monolithic central databases for every government service. This has been accomplished by giving administration sectors complete freedom in building their information systems, but as long as they are connected to X-Road. Then they can use services themselves or provide services to other administration sectors over X-Road with no impediment if another administration sector uses different technologies. In other words, if you speak English, others that can speak English can understand what you are saying, can ask information from you, and you can do the same in return in a secure manner. X-Road only sets specific minimal demands on the technical components of the services that want to communicate over X-Road or want to provide services over X-Road. Primary requirement for information system is that it is able to communicate with the security server and understand requests coming from the server. But while X-Road has been immensely successful, helping digital government to evolve into where it is today, a few things require addressing to make sure X-Road does not become outdated. Number one, information systems that are connected over X-Road are internally complex and often monolithic, resulting in difficulty in implementing new business rules driven by laws and regulations, and X-Road by itself encourages monolithic approach due to the complexity of setting up and running security servers. Number two, Getting X-Road up and running, even for trialing reasons, is very complex and often considered an impediment. Expectations of trialing software stacks today are to simply download, install, and configure. But this is only partly possible with X-Road today with the majority of difficulty related to setup configuration. Number three. While the ideal vision for services available on X-Road has been for each service to have their own autonomous service endpoints to connect to, due to complexity, multiple large-scale information systems are designed so that they can share the same endpoint. Even if internally, the services have little in common with one another. Number four, while X-Road allows for complex requests from multiple different sources, these requests are synchronous. Due to this, implementing massive data analysis is becoming a problem with X-Road, which was not originally intended for massive data requests. However, 
As business demand for such requests is there in the era of data analysis, emerging alternative solutions might fragment data exchange in digital government. And lastly, number five, with the emergence of APIs in the private sector, both domestically and at an international level, integration to APIs have become easier over time. Integration of XROAD and comparison is difficult and is often brought out as a negative. This needs addressing if XROAD is to become a solution for not only domestic, but also cross-border communication. While service-oriented architecture benefits also apply for XROAD, due to nationwide digital government scale of these services and their integrations has ended up creating tight coupling problems on an unprecedented scale. This means that while it is indeed possible to replace a service and its technical components behind an XROAD security server, just like you could replace an API behind a gateway, in reality, it happens very infrequently due to the size of those services. While no fault of XROAD, due to the synchronous and tightly coupled integrations, the digital government stack has become distributed monolith in its own right and steps have to be made to mitigate this in the future. This also impacts secure sustainability of critical government services. Due to architectural complexity and tight coupling, services have impediments to function without their dependencies. This is especially evident in the concept of data embassies. Estonia is pioneering in setting up data embassies outside their own territories meaning that critical data would be stored outside physical territory of the Republic of Estonia in order to attain digital independence of its citizens. But due to architectural tight coupling, these services and data embassies are merely data backups and cannot function independently. With the current architecture of government technology of Estonia, it is difficult, if not impossible, to assure that government technology stack is susceptible to cascading failures due to such dependencies. We're now moving on to the next section, 4.4, microservices. Before microservices can be better explained, it is a good idea to understand the concept of ship of Theseus, which is a philosophical puzzle, and it goes like this. There is a ship called Theseus that sets sail around the world and visits all of the ports of the world. Every now and then, parts of the ship break down or sails need repair or replacement. By the time it arrives back home years later, every single piece of the ship has been replaced with a new component, some pieces many times over. Can you then still claim that the ship is Theseus? by the time it arrives home. The whole concept of Conway's law and domain-driven design in earlier sections are about making the responsible business stakeholders as well as the engineer accept the reality that systems need to be as flexible as humans are, for better or worse. And designing this flexibility into core of the systems is an inherent responsibility of both stakeholders, technical, and business alike. And while the ship of Theseus is in many ways an ideal, information systems designed in a way that keeps these concepts in mind will lead to more natural migration of technology 
and better standardization and evolution of standards. Martin Fowler, renowned expert in the field of software architecture, has said that if you are unsure how to do any better, building a monolith is not a bad decision. It will be cheaper and quicker to implement. Keep in mind that microservice architecture does not exist. There exists architecture that has microservices. By taking into account the requirements of the public sector and the aforementioned topics of proactive background services, design, virtual assistance, and needs for a flexible architecture, it is expensive for digital government to build services any different than in a flexible manner. Anything temporary that is important enough tends to become permanent, especially in governments. While service-oriented architecture was an important evolutionary step in software architecture and took a large step closer to enabling more agile development as well as better system design through domain-driven design, it still encountered multiple issues. These issues were tackled in 2011 in Venice, where a software engineering workshop was held and the term microservices was actually first mentioned in the context that is known today and the use of the new technology buzzword has exploded since 2012. Microservices are a way to build information systems that have features similar to the ship of Theseus. Microservices is not a revolutionary concept. Rather, it is an evolutionary step from monoliths to service-oriented architecture to microservices. In fact, microservices are a way to build a more autonomous and scalable service-oriented architecture. Thus, most of the benefits of service-oriented architecture still apply to concepts of microservices as well. The truly revolutionary part of this evolution is that concepts of service-oriented architecture are merging of microservice architecture concepts with the concepts of event-driven architecture. The latter is a concept as old as service-oriented architecture, but with the emergence of microservice patterns, the two concepts are being combined for the eventual benefits of both. In service-oriented architecture, it was expected that all of the technical services have an API that can be used by other services and user interfaces. Event-driven architecture dispels this expectation. Your services may have an API, but they are not required to do so. Instead, what is expected is that your services themselves are connecting to dumb messaging environments in a concept called smart endpoints dumb pipes. A good real-life example is that your employees are smart, but the physical spaces where they work in are dumb. Thus, technical components are smart, but the environments they communicate with each other are dumb and often agnostic to business smarts. At a high level, this looks something like this. And again, Crystal has provided us with an image. You can look at that image in the description below. It is image 5.0. Multiple differences are already evident compared to a more traditional service-oriented architecture. Some of the services have APIs, some don't. API Gateway has technically vanished, 
but has actually been replaced by an expansive, dumb messaging environment, or environments, as there could be many, that every service can connect to. Security duties of API gateways are carried by services themselves as they become more autonomous, and multiple of these messaging environments are possible while the service can be connected to various different messaging environments. Beginning a new subsection of 4.4 titled Features of a Good Microservice. As mentioned previously, microservice is an evolutionary step from a technical component with an API within service-oriented architecture. Golden rule of microservices is to be able to change a service and get it to production without having to change anything else. Simple? Reality is that ever since microservice became a buzzword, it has been forgotten that microservices don't exist in their own right. Similarly to agile development, it is also not actually a problem for engineers to solve alone. Leaving microservices for engineers to solve results in microservices being built from the technical perspective instead of business perspective. As Conway's law and domain-driven design has shown, this should not be the case. An engineer will rely upon their technical background and compartmentalization of technical components and logic. Engineers grew up with principles to use framework, build modular systems, and not to duplicate data. But a microservice is not an alternative way to encapsulate and standardize communication between technical modules and database components. To get to actual microservices, it is important to start with domain-driven design. Doing anything differently means gambling and hoping to avoid Conway's law. Thus, to expand on what are the identifying features of a good microservice, it is necessary to expand on what are the identifying features of a good API within service-oriented architecture. Number one, a good API is stateless. HTTPS front slash rest service. Service being stateless means that every request to the API happens in complete isolation and output of a stateless API is generally always the same as long as the input is the same. Number two, API should traditionally not act as an interface for remote procedure call or RPC. Remote procedure calls are not stateless as they depend upon their environment. Number three, a good API service is loosely coupled and autonomous. This means that even if other services run into conflicts or become unavailable, service is still up and running even if with limited features. Number four, a good service is versioned, meaning that if new features are added to the service, then existing functionality does not break down. If both allows for backwards compatibility within reason, as well as more opportunity to evolve the service without creating fear of further development due to the amount of consumers of the API. This assumes well-planned change management. Number five, 
A good service implements caching protocols and standards. Number six, a good service is mockable, meaning that it is possible to see and understand how an API works, even if an actual request to that specific API are not made. Number seven, a good service is self-documenting and publishes an internally accurate documentation. A good tool for this is Swagger. Swagger is a tool that produces API descriptions in open API description format. Earlier, the specification was known as Swagger specification, but it was renamed to Open API specification in 2015. Number eight, a good service is monitored and logged by the environment and includes traceable correlation ID that can be used to trace a wide array of business requests that are dependent upon one another. Note that there is no existing recommended standard for correlation IDs, and in the case of Estonia, a standard needs to be agreed upon by the engineering community. Once defined, this is expected to be implemented in the next version of XROAD. Number nine. A good service is covered with acceptance and integration tests that assure integrity and quality of functionality. Number 10, a good service is idempotent, which means that not only is it stateless, but it also handles the concept of eventual consistency. A good example is that deletion of an object over an API should be possible from multiple clients at the same time without one of the consumers getting an error, as long as both consumers had the permission to delete the object. And lastly, number 11, a good service uses a non-central method to authenticate user requests. Standardized solutions such as JSON Web Token are recommended for this, as it allows to authenticate requests without requiring tight coupling with user authentication services. This also makes it possible to enable concept of single sign-on. All of the above features of a good service are benefits of service-oriented architecture evolution over monolithic software. In terms of microservices, those features are not replaced and instead a few new features and expectations are added. Number one. A good microservice is built for cloud and supports as many concepts from 12-factor app methodology as much as possible. In case of Estonia, due to low cloud readiness, the Architecture Council agreed upon four simplified requirements for services. So now this is 1A. Service setup and configuration is automated through scripts and service is possible to start up and be recovered with the use of those scripts. 1B, service must be able to consist of multiple independent instances. 1C, service must be scalable potentially between at least two different physical locations. And 1D, it must be possible to backup data of the service as well as restore data of the service in case of corruption with automated scripts. Number two, a good microservice is primarily choreographed, 
meaning that it responds to its environment and acts as a consumer and or publisher in dumb messaging environments. Number three, a good microservice continues to be stateless and does not store data within its container irrelevant to the number of instances or copies that are being run at the same time. And number four, a good microservice is reusable driven from its design. Following domain-driven design principles, a good microservice is responsible for a single domain in whole or autonomous flows of said domain in parts. It is also important to mention that microservice does not mean a small code base. It means a small autonomous set of business functionalities that have a potential to be infinitely scaled or reused and serving a wide variety of business cases. Paraphrasing the words of Sam Newman from his book, Building Microservices, a good principle for microservices is to combine services and functionalities that all changes for the same reason and separate those functionalities and services that change for different reasons. Internally, this means the same thing as the concepts explained in domain-driven design and ideally your microservice architecture as a result maps to your actual organization and business process in the end. Note that microservices are not a silver bullet. When implementing microservices, certain things still need to be kept in mind. Number one, while autonomy is an ideal, it can be an incredibly expensive solution and often compromises that need to be made. While autonomy of microservices implies that services are fully autonomous in their own function, library sharing for common functionalities such as for JWT validation should not be built from scratch for every single service. Thus, library reuse is a good option. But libraries and frameworks inherently create their own threat of technology locking and coupling, so decisions where to use libraries must be carefully considered. Number two, concept of microservices are becoming even more evident in edge computing and Internet of Things as soon as it is difficult to distinguish autonomous Internet of Things devices from digital microservice. Both, if designed well, carry almost indistinguishable similarities. Number three, it is difficult to do microservices properly without also implementing cloud technologies well. While it is possible, the true benefits of microservices come to fruition once microservice architecture is built for and deployed to cloud. But this also means that your IT development teams need to be well-versed in both microservices and cloud technologies. For further research, most notable examples of microservice success stories come from Spotify, Netflix, Amazon, as well as Best Buy. The upcoming second edition of Building Microservices book by Sam Newman is also expected to bring up further detailed use cases of success stories and failures. We're now moving on to another subsection of 4.4. It is called Synchronous versus Asynchronous Communication. 
While microservices have multiple important features that could be expanded upon further, as this paper also focuses on message-based event-driven architecture, it is important to cover the topic of synchronous versus asynchronous communication in order to achieve autonomous microservices and manage the risk of cascading failures. This concept is not just important for technology, but also for domain-driven design and business processes themselves. Synchronous communication means that if you request something, for example, if you wish to grant permissions to your colleague to access a certain information system, and in order to do so, you need the security department to make required changes, you make the request and will be waiting for confirmation of the security department response. Until you get that response, your own business process is locked up. Imagine that you would be unable to continue your work with any other task until that response comes. Again, Christo has provided us with an image here. You can look at that image in the description. It is image 6.0. In day-to-day -day life, this situation seems unfathomable. But the reality is that the majority of information systems communicate with one another over synchronous requests today, both within government and without. These requests may time out, causing complications and possible cascading failures across the business process. The reason why synchronous requests rarely become a problem is that information systems and processing is usually fast and responses are far quicker than having to wait for a reply from another department. But synchronous requests are a problem that needs handling in architecture. If your business complexity involves the use of multiple services and multiple API requests, then all of those requests are adding up in response time. If the service you are using makes their own requests to further services, then processing time of all those services adds up to your own waiting time. This situation is made worse if some services are more popular and have to serve hundreds if not thousands of requests at the same time. This locks up every single synchronous request while those requests are being served. Asynchronous communication is the alternative that avoids this problem. While messaging environments explained in later sections inherently don't demand asynchronicity, it is a more natural form of communication that is also more similar to how organizations work internally. A service is able to start multiple processes and sub-processes and handle them at the same time as multiple threads. And what's more, Crystal's provided us an image here. In the description, it will be image 7.0. This is a far healthier model to handle communication between technical services, just like it is healthier for organizations in whole. Technology also allows to scale services, especially autonomous microservices, so the scale can be balanced across thousands or interactions within a second, if required. But this can be more complex for an IT development team to implement and requires experience in making multi-threaded requests. Benefits of such implementation mean a more autonomous services and architecture and better potential for scalability. We are moving to 
another subsection of 4.4. This one is called event-driven messaging environment. One of the key drivers behind microservices is the challenge to have even more decoupled software architecture than possible with service-oriented architecture. Coupling is bad as it means that dependencies are impending the growth and evolution of software architecture. If you build a service that is used by only one consumer, and if you wish to change that service, you then have to manage the change with that one consumer. This is often a phone call or an email degree of separation, problem, and not difficult to handle. But if your service has dozens, hundreds, or thousands of consumers that are dependent on your service, making changes to this service is a far more complex problem and in the example of digital government can mean an incredibly slow to non-existent changes in critical technology stacks. This is because those integrations are tightly coupled between two information systems. Traditional integrations between software systems follow a push or pull model. This is in many ways the aforementioned choice of synchronous requests versus asynchronous requests on a large scale. In the pull model, you connect to services that hold the data that interests you. In the push model, the data that interests you is pushed to you as it happens. And you may also push data from your systems to other systems that are interested in your data. Crystal has provided us with another rather large image. You can find the image in the description. It is image 8.0. While the pool model is not bad and can be beneficial in some circumstances, it is essentially a direct dependency that needs to be separately managed. This means that if the information system B on the previous chart is unavailable, then information system A may also fail to function. If this system is not fault tolerant, then it can lead to further cascading failures across the architecture. In comparison, the pool model makes sure that information system A can still function while information system B is down because it depends on data that is provided at the time information B is up and running. Service-oriented architecture led architects to implementing concepts of API gateways as a solution for loose coupling. But while it works in some instances, the API gateway is frequently too smart, creating coupling in itself that needs to be handled and managed separately. In order to tackle the issues of coupling within complex architecture, event-driven architecture has emerged with possibly the best and most natural solution. We move on once more to another subsection of 4.4, messages and event-driven architecture. Event-driven architecture is architecture style where system functions are executed based on events and event triggers in order to achieve both scalability and loose coupling. The hypothetical loosest coupling is achieved with your system being subscribed as a listener to dumb message room, where data that interests you is pushed to and your services reacts to those events. 
This creates a more dependency-loose environment for the services to thrive on while it increases complexity as data sharing now needs three separate endpoints. The idea behind dumb messaging space and messaging rooms is, similarly to every good concept, rooted in how humans themselves work and cooperate. As humans, we cannot be sure if the way we cooperate in real life is the absolute ideal of communication possibilities. But as we are restricted by Conway's law, the best we can do is have technology automate the best routines in our everyday life. And this is exactly what dumb messaging rooms are meant to represent. The core concept is that messaging rooms are like working spaces and meeting rooms in your organization and technical services that are communication participants in those rooms are like employees in the organization. This concept was illustrated earlier by the practical example of domain-driven design. There are two popular methods for setting up decoupled messaging environments. Number one, smart broker, dumb consumer. Solution where services are being served messages intended only for them. Good examples of such technology stack to try out without having to build it from scratch yourself is RabbitMQ. Again, we are presented with a graph or a chart or an image by Crystal. You can find it in the description as image 9.0. Number two, dumb broker, smart consumer. Solution where the services themselves have to be aware of which messages are important to them and how to use them. Good example of such technology stack to trial without having to build it from scratch yourself is Apache Kafka. Once more, we are presented with an image from Christo. You can find it in the description as image 10.0. One option is not necessarily better than the other. And whether a certain kind of messaging solution serves your business requirements better depends on what those business requirements are. It is important to note that if you are dealing with large-scale organization and especially a set of dependent organizations, such as administration sectors and public sector, then the concept of dumb messaging broker and smart consumer is a better natural fit. This allows for message rooms to be shared between administration sectors without enforcing business requirements onto the message broker itself. The same applies to cross-border data sharing, as governments expect their services to be smart and in control. The way dumb message brokers work is that they rely upon topics and publish-subscribe model of integration. Smart consumers, such as your technical components, are listeners of message rooms as subscribers to certain topics that impact their workflow. If something happens of interest to them, they are able to react to it. Reacting to such messages is the core concept of event-driven architecture as it implies that your architecture is driven by events that happen in your business logic such as actions of a citizen on a website, entry of form, signing of documents, and so on. On the scale of a whole country or even a group of countries, every administration sector can be an owner of message rooms 
that are part of the service they are responsible for. Services that are using these message rooms can by themselves internally also use multiple message rooms. For example, a complex business process that is mapped using business process modeling can connect to different message rooms within their flow to support cross-domain proactive services. Crystal has given us one more image. You can find it in the description below, and it is image 11.0. Such messaging environments can become a healthy evolution for government technology stack as a whole, as it allows to decouple services from one another in ways not reasonably possible before. It is only in recent years that server architecture and cloud has matured well enough that such principles are scalable for organizations in the size of a nation. We're now moving on to another subsection of 4.4 titled Cap Theorem. In order to round up issues of tight coupling from monoliths to more loosely coupled microservices, it is also important for business and technical stakeholders to understand the concept of cap theorem. Known computer scientist Eric Brewer is the author of cap theorem, which states that it is impossible for a service to provide more than two of the following three features. Number one, consistency. Every read receives the most recent write on an error. Number two, Availability. Every request receives a non-error response without the guarantee that it contains the most recent write. And number three, partition tolerance. The system continues to operate despite an arbitrary number of messages being dropped or delayed by the network between nodes. While this may sound a little technical, what it means in reality from service running perspective is that your service can only be one of three types. One, consistent and partition tolerant. Two, available and partition tolerant. And three, consistent and available. In architecture where services are distributed and integrated over a network, partition tolerance is a required feature that cannot be avoided. This means that the third option is not actually an option in distributed service-oriented architecture, and as a result, you can only pick between the following two options below. The first one being consistent and partition-tolerant service, and this is yet another subsection in 4.4. A service that is consistent means that the data of the service is consistent regardless where you request the data from. If your consumer requests data from your service, they always get the most up-to-date state of said data. Partition-tolerant service means that the service will be able to function even if there are network communication errors between multiple instances of the service. However, consistent and partition-tolerant services sacrifice availability. This means that at times, 
the service is unavailable either due to having to synchronize data in order to assure consistency or dealing with partition tolerance. The next subsection, available and partition tolerant service. A service that is available means that the service can be connected to and requested data from at all times. Partition tolerant service means that the service will be able to function even if there are network communication errors between multiple instances of the service. However, available and partition tolerant services sacrifice consistency. While in good architecture, the data becomes eventually consistent, at any point in time, data is not consistent and 100% up to date, but it is always available. The next subsection is called the concept of eventual consistency. The decision whether to build partition tolerant services that are either consistent or available can depend upon what the business requirements are. As such, it is critically important to make sure that all parties involved understand that services are inherently incapable of being both 100% available and 100% consistent over a distributed network at the same time. Any expectations for such are misguided. The concept of eventual consistency is possibly the only option for large-scale information architecture that attempts to be as loosely coupled and flexible as possible. The idea of eventual consistency is that you accept that your entire system architecture up to the level of the whole digital government stack is never consistent and 100% up to date with the most accurate information at all times. However, eventual consistency means that eventually the information will be up to date in a service or database that presently has outdated information. Handling and planning for this eventual consistency is something that technical stakeholders need to take into account early in planning software architecture. One more subsection in 4.4, cloud native services. There is a saying that reusability is not only about how many users your service is and how many incoming integrations it has, but it is as important to build services and technical components that are environment agnostic as much as possible. What this means is that a service should not just be scalable, but also have the option to be taken and redeployed elsewhere and used by the third party independently. Building cloud native services is a way to accomplish this. Microservices are inherently cloud ready, but not everything that is cloud ready is a microservice. And while there have been thorough books written about the topic, it is important that business and technical stakeholders share a common understanding regarding what it means for services to be cloud native. And here, Crystal has provided us with an image. Again, you can see the image in the description below. It is image 12.0. Monolithic information systems are not cloud native. If demand for your monolithic service increases, your only option is to either acquire more hardware for the server that runs this service or more scale 
for your virtual machines. If peak demand for the service decreases, you are stuck with an increased capacity that is not used. Amazon originally faced this problem as they built huge data centers with increased capacity because of Black Friday and Christmas. The amount of sales volume during those hours was multitudes higher than during any other season. But this also meant that during every other season, Amazon had to maintain notably larger than demand requires server stack and capacity. In order to solve this problem, Amazon ended up offering cloud as a service for companies and private individuals alike. The extra capacity was monetized and diverted into extra revenue, ending up with one of the most successful cloud services at the time of writing this paper. Crystals provided us with another image. It's image 13.0 and can be found in the description below. In service-oriented architecture, cloud nativeness is more widely adapted. Using interfaces are decoupled from backend logic over APIs and can be scaled independently. API gateway scale is still a problem and the majority of services are likely to be virtual machine stacks that are running and supporting their API functionality. This is a slightly easier problem to scale, but peak hours can still impact increased cost and requirements. Crystal has given us one more image to look at. It is image 14.0 and have a look at it down in the description below. In microservice architecture, every component can be scaled individually if deployed to the cloud, such as AWS. While this is a very simplified model, if all services and service components are in the cloud, then they can be scaled per single component demand. If good principles from microservice architecture are kept in mind, then cloud platform is able to scale components in a dynamic manner by creating multiple instances temporarily to deal with the load. If cloud infrastructure is shared between multiple administration sectors, then benefits of increased performance can also be shared. Instead of requiring high performance once a week and having to pay the difference during downtime, the availability capacity could be used by other administration sectors. What this effectively means is that with a well-implemented cloud platform and architecture, you would be actually only paying for what you are actually using. And this could have a positive impact on service costs, opening up opportunities to perhaps develop a service that beforehand you weren't able to do because of infrastructure costs. This could be considered even further towards serverless architecture, how microservices could be deployed without the need from maintaining underlying infrastructure resources. Our next subsection is called Chaos Engineering. A true test of cloud-based microservice architecture comes from concepts of chaos engineering and tools such as Chaos Monkey. The core idea of Chaos Monkey is that parts of your information system, perhaps networking, perhaps databases, perhaps static file serving server, perhaps session storage, gets removed randomly. This approach was pioneered by Netflix, 
who uses chaos engineering to this day to ensure integrity and quality of their architecture. Applying chaos engineering to public sector information systems will, in many cases, lead to cascading failures across the information system, requiring a restarting of services and extra validation steps. But the litmus test of well-engineered and well-architected information system is to survive tests of chaos engineering and not only remain up, albeit with limited functionality, during downtime of certain services, but also recover. This is possible when designing with CAP theorem and microservice autonomy and replicated cloud infrastructure in mind. Topics requiring further research include cloud chaos engineering to be reasonably implemented in public sector services, and is designing information system without chaos engineering cap theorem in mind a risk for public sector services. The last subcategory in section 4.4 is titled Risks of Microservices. This paper focuses on the evolutionary road of large-scale architecture from monolithic architecture to service-oriented architecture to microservices and event-driven architecture. It is incredibly easy to look in the rearview mirror and see the multiple aspects where monoliths were failing and SOA was lacking. The same rearview mirror does not exist yet for microservices. Microservices have multiple key benefits that seemingly make sense compared to abstractions of other architecture patterns. But in many ways, microservices are still an abstraction and are still flawed. It is important for IT development teams to take into account all of the following. Number one, do not build microservices for the sake of building microservices. Unless you have a well-laid-out system design with your business stakeholders, such as through domain-driven design as described earlier in the paper, you will likely make irreversible and expensive mistakes. Number two, while microservices are intended to be autonomous, be wary of introducing dependencies to microservices. If all microservices are built upon the same software framework or use the same software library, and this framework or library changes, your autonomy may vanish quicker than you can deploy the services. Number three, at the same time, you do not want all microservices to be completely autonomous either. Otherwise, you have to reinvent the wheel in writing the same functional code that does the same function over and over in all microservices again. Number four, be aware that while autonomous microservices as a principle is a somewhat matured and well-established concept for knowledgeable engineers by now, cloud is not. Containerized cloud technologies and Docker are in rapid development and continuous change since 2013. This fluctuating environment needs to be addressed as a risk. Number five. Do not build microservice architecture where microservices are all dependent upon a single database. Number six, if you feel uncertain 
Do not plan the whole service with a microservice architecture in mind. If uncertain, keep some of the uncertain parts separated with modules, but as a monolith. It is possible to decouple later if needed, but make sure you develop some services as microservices in order to get more comfortable. Moving on to the next section, 4.5 X Rooms. In previous sections, a lot of focus was given to building scalable, autonomous microservices, how to decouple set services, and how to plan for their communications better through message brokers. A lot of these topics are new for digital government technology stacks that have been around for years. Attempting to make a shift from synchronous, tightly coupled communication to asynchronous, loosely coupled communication across digital government stack, expecting all administration sectors to rethink and rebuild how their services traditionally integrate can be a high ask. Estonia has benefited greatly from technology solutions that are overarching across digital government stack, namely Estonian Digital Identity and XROAD. Estonia uses XROAD for fast interoperability and secure data exchange between large-scale information systems and data registries in different administration sectors of the country. While XROAD can be complicated to set up, once it's set up, it works. It is by far the most trustworthy way how autonomous administration sectors can exchange data and request data from other registries in other administration sectors. But if we look at concepts tackled in this paper, it is likely evident that the idea of domain-driven design microservices and asynchronous communication can be an impediment when XROAD is involved. At an abstract level, XROAD communication between services works as follows. And again, Crystal has provided us with an image. You can see it in the description below. It is image 15.0. Service A wishes to request data from service B over XROAD. This request is a synchronous request, meaning that service A will be waiting for a response from service B. As previously described, there are few problems with this method of communication. One, service A needs to wait until service B responds and can only then proceed. There is a complex alternative in service A multi-threading the request but this increases internal service A complexity. Number two, service B needs to exist or service B itself needs to act as a gateway to other dependent services behind it. This, similarly to the previous point, would require a custom solution on the service B side. And number three, service A and B are tightly coupled. Communication between these services is dependent on either side not changing. Otherwise, integration breaks down. Each of those three issues can be handled with custom solutions on the side of Service A and Service B. But these are fundamental issues shared by every single consumer and provider on XROAD. As such, 
it is recommended that the solution itself is provided by X-Road rather than having to build complex solutions on service A and B side that increase fragmentation of technological architecture. What is proposed is that X-Road, which is technically a network road infrastructure between different administration sector service endpoints, would also start providing messaging rooms within that infrastructure called X-Rooms. Again, Crystal has provided us with an image. You can see that image in the description below. It is image 16.0. These networked X-Rooms would be built following publish, subscribe messaging models and the earlier described concept of dumb brokers and smart consumers. This means that the services A and B are still responsible components delivering business functions just as they always have been. In X-Road, the endpoints have always been where business smarts of digital government is implemented. X-Rooms would be messaging rooms that make sure that participants in the X-Room have the right to be in that messaging room. Either security server of current X-Road architecture or a similar secure alternative would be required to enable this. All other existing features of X-Road would still apply just as they would with direct service communication. There are multiple key benefits over having to implement messaging rooms outside X-Road infrastructure. Number one, administration sectors would not have to reinvent the wheel. If you are already using X-Road, Starting to use X-Road provided messaging rooms is not more difficult than making requests over X-Road. Note that handling asynchronous requests is still important. Number two, X-Road is already a trustworthy data exchange solution that guarantees non-repudiation with recorded EIDAS compliant evidence. The functionality would be beneficial to message rooms themselves as otherwise custom-made message rooms outside X-Road would hide data that is important. Number three, most notably, citizen data ownership and transparency in the use of data would enhance implementation of GDPR as well. Number four, virtual assistants and bureaucrat could also be a user of various message rooms. Number five, it is a possibility that services that implement X-Road messaging rooms would not have to deal with a word that I cannot pronounce. I'm going to try and pronounce it. Enmigelia. And Crystal opens up a bracket to describe that word, and it begins like this. So open bracket. Data Observer, a concept and a set of tools for administration sectors to enhance transparency in use of citizen data. Close bracket. So, X-Road messaging rooms would not have to deal with this word, this data observer thing, on the service side at all, as messaging rooms would be able to provide this functionality internally. Number six. Adoption rate of X-Road is slow and it is difficult to get other countries on board to use X-Road due to multiple complexities. This means 
that it is important to have a good set of reasons why X rows should be considered in this day and age. One of the best arguments possible is that X-Road would support complex decoupled and flexible digital government architecture for the next generation. By providing both secure data exchange as well as secure asynchronous message rooms, X-Road would be my own personal choice for any large-scale system interoperability, even if not in the public sector. While messaging rooms over X-Road already carry benefits of a more decoupled architecture, other benefits of messaging rooms will also be possible, most notably the multi-tenancy prospect. This means that it would be possible for multiple services to participate in the same room, reacting to messages and publishing their own messages. Again, Crystal's provided us with an image. You can have a look at that image in the description below. And it is image 16, sorry, image 17.0. This would mean that service A that requests data from XRoom may not have to care from whom the response comes from service B, C, or D. Service A also does not need to rebuild itself just because participants in X rooms change. It is only when their own business flow monitoring shows that processes in service A are not working anymore can engineers start handling the problem. Potential of standardized X rooms goes even beyond the public sector. X rooms can be set up for cooperation with the private sector and even by the private sector itself. For example, there could be an X room that is intended for ride-sharing, mini procurements. If a government service requires transportation from point A to point B, they publish such a request to an X room dedicated for ride-sharing services from the private sector. Private sector participants are subscribers to that X room, and once detecting a request, they can start their own internal processes and then publish an offer to that same X room. Original requesting service can then make an automated decision or ask the user to pick the most convenient option provided by the private sector. And this service would work independently of how many ride sharing services are integrated with the X room. Here are the next steps and key takeaways for implementing X rooms. Number one. Messaging rooms should become a feature provided by XROAD to both their consumers and publishers. Publish, subscribe messaging rooms, dumb messaging rooms and brokers, are recommended in order to keep business logic itself as much away from XROAD solution as possible. Number three, having transparent understanding of what services are provided through message rooms and who are participants in the message rooms are important. Thus, documentation and transparency are critical to encourage growth of the message rooms. Number four, correlation ID should become standardized over XROAD for data logging and tracking purposes. If a request is made over XROAD, it should get assigned a correlation ID that will be handled tracked and potentially forwarded between services that are handling the requests. 
Correlation idea is important for GDPR as well as gaining visibility over complex processes over distributed architecture. Xroad already automatically assigns a unique ID to each request and response, which is delivered in a specific HTTP header when the REST interface is used. The SOAP interface does not currently forward the ID to the consumer nor the provider information system. Number five, decoupled messaging rooms would also enhance XROAD viability for mass data analysis in real-time reporting. With subscribers to events, it would be possible to follow events as they happen without having to request huge amounts of data at once every day or month. Number six, next version of XROAD looks to expand its cloud capabilities of security servers and messaging rooms are inherently best scalable over cloud. If XROAD will not provide messaging rooms, then these messaging rooms have to be implemented within administration sectors by themselves, leading to technological fragmentation. This also sets heightened expectations to security as fragmentation and custom solutions of such message rooms will have to be at least as secure as data exchange is over XROAD. It would also mean that an important part of data exchange and data interoperability is not part of XROAD, which may lower the adoption rate and benefits gained from using XROAD. Next, we have a subsection of 4.5 titled Messages or Events. One key criteria that needs to be agreed upon to be transparent is what type of payload is posted into message rooms, messages or events. An event provides information that a specific event, for example, a child was born, has happened, and the event contains a link or a reference to another endpoint or service that provides the full event data. Subscribers that are interested in the full data will send a request to the second endpoint or service. They also need to be authorized to access that endpoint or service. From a security perspective, this is a good solution because the message room will not store any sensitive data and data locality in a public cloud is not an issue either. For a subscriber, this alternative is more complicated since accessing the data requires an additional request to be sent. Differently, a message contains the full event data. All subscribers receive the full data and additional requests are not required. In case this approach is used and sensitive data is published, the access rights of the message room must be managed strictly. In addition, also data locality might become an issue, especially in public cloud environments. From XRO's point of view, how the concept is technically implemented, there's not much difference between the alternatives since XROAD is fully payload agnostic. However, different alternatives may have different requirements regarding access rights management, authorization, and where and how the data sent to message rooms is stored. Both options are possible simultaneously but needs to be carefully considered in system design.
another subsection in 4.5. This is titled Cross-Border Potential. With standardization and shared tools that allow governments to share data without having to decouple their architecture directly with that of another country or countries, a new opportunity emerges. For example, the government of Finland has also adopted XROAD within their digital government stack. This potentially gives a unique opportunity in discovering together a new way for cross-border data exchange. Due to the standardized nature of message rooms and concepts of XROOMs within XROAD stack, it would be possible for government data exchange to happen over XROOMs. It is already possible to integrate multiple XROAD ecosystems between one another and using XROOMs is a natural next step. Here are the core reasons why cross-border connectivity over XROOMs would surpass in effectiveness the various alternatives. Number one, in the same way that organizations would benefit from decoupling their internal architecture and especially between different organization architectures, cross-border interoperability is an exponentially more difficult problem. No country wants to couple their government systems with cross-border systems any more than they have to. Number two, concepts of domain-driven design would also apply for cross-border data exchange. Business processes that are required to happen within a country when requesting data from another country can be mapped following similar concepts. Instead of having to send an email and waiting for manual processing by a government official, this could be automated through XROOMs and freely integrated by government's own backend services, whatever they may be. Moving on to the next section, 4.6, Fact Registries. The concept of fact registries is by far most raw for next generation digital government architecture and should be treated as such, but potential of fact registries can be huge. Fact registries are inspired by the existing solution integrated data infrastructure in New Zealand. IDI, as it is known, is essentially a large research database that holds microdata about people and households. The data is about life events like education, income, benefits, migration, justice, and health. It comes from government agencies, Stats New Zealand surveys, and non-government organizations. The data is linked together or integrated to form the IDI. Multiple government services and databases report facts about certain events into IDI, which allows to conduct wide-scale statistics and research in a convenient way. What if a similar approach could be used to handle three important issues that are prevalent in public sector digital government architecture. Number one, replacing services technology stack is incredibly expensive, both to refactor as well as to start from scratch. The cost of migration of data from one functional database to another requires both the understanding of not only the source database, but also functionalities of the source system. 
This leads to issues of data quality as well as bloated costs of analysis and careful migration planning. Number two, many governments, Estonia included, are relying on functional information systems, understanding of truth, and the state of the world. This means that the citizen address is assumed to be what it is in the functional database of population registry. If something goes wrong in that registry or an error is made, it is difficult to detect and while expensive methods are implemented for most critical databases. And number three, archiving important business data is difficult, as is backing up the most crucial data. It is hard to separate which data from which database is relevant to such purpose in the long term, and it can be expensive to archive and back up everything. Today, the government of Estonia is backing up data of its most critical information systems into cross-border data embassy as a solution to assure digital independence for the citizens. Should something go wrong and original databases become inaccessible, then the data embassy is the source of truth for assuring who a specific citizen is. There are multiple issues related to functional database backups into data embassies and the most critical issue is that these backups are difficult to understand without the functional logic of the information system and its integration around the functional data. While the state's digital continuity is definitely assured to an extent, maybe something better is possible for next generation digital government architecture. The same is true with long-term digital archives. The National Archives of Estonia is responsible for deciding which data is sufficiently important to be kept for future generations, gathering it into the National Digital Archive, detecting and archiving important factual data for future generations. Doing so today involves a lot of manual work, from data dumps to classification and continuous manual changes whenever data sources change. Today, the process of archiving data from a monolith in a long-term understandable way is highly problematic. A normal database implements a highly complex data model which is only understandable to IT experts. Thus, a database dump from this database cannot be expected to be reasonably reusable in 50 years from now. Further, most of the data in the database is in fact not worth preserving for the future. For example, while generic factual information about buildings like construction plans and ownership is certainly valuable for future generations, then data about the many small steps in the workflow of issuing a building or renovation permit is only needed for a relatively short time period in a handful of years. Nowadays, the process of classifying which data is actually relevant for archiving, exporting it, enriching it with contextual metadata and transferring it to the digital archive is largely manual and can take months to carry out. But what if we do not store a single source of truth within a functional database of data registry information systems anymore? Here, Christos provided us with another image.
It's a rather large one and complex one. You can find it in the description below as image 18.0. The concept of fact registry, if implemented well, would mean two things. One, if the government wants to start developing a new service, they do not have to worry about data migration from the old service anymore. They do not even need an understanding of how exactly the previous information system worked. Number two, new information systems will be built independently of whatever was there before and multiple information systems, even within the same domain, could be in development at the same time. Data migration becomes a non-issue in a way. This means that the fear of breaking old systems and old integrations is much less of a problem and you also do not need big bang type of service releases as you can actually run multiple domain registries at the same time, such as two population registries. To make this happen, we need fact registries. Similarly to the core concept of IDI, a fact registry stores government events. You can have multiple fact registries. For example, population fact registry would store births and new personal codes that have been assigned to citizens. Facts about name changes, address changes, and more. All of those facts would be stored as events in the fact registry that can be monitored and requested by authorized parties. Services' own databases will only act as functional databases for the service itself and have no need to store knowledge or awareness beyond the functional scope of the system. Everything that factually matters for the government would be stored and signed in the fact registry. For example, 1. A birth is registered by the hospital. 2. Population registry detects the birth either by being subscribed to a message room that handles this information or an authenticated API call was made from the hospital. 3. Population registry starts the internal process in registering the birth. This can involve notifying different message rooms, querying data, as well as registering the personal identity code. Crystal is now giving us another sort of a sub, so we are moving on from 3 to 3A, and 3A is presented in the document as just simply three ellipses. Then we move on to 3B, which is a digital fact document is made by the population registry and signed by the private key of the population registry information system. This document is then submitted to the birth related fact registry. 3C Fact registry authenticates the signature of the new fact to assure that it is from the right source. 3D, fact registry stores the new fact and adds it to the internal blockchain. 3E, fact registry publishes new event to related message rooms and other systems can react to this new fact, possibly integrating some of its data within their own internal databases. 3F, we close all of this with three ellipses and we finish the whole block of text with item four, which is 
population registry stores whatever it deems necessary within its own functional database. Another flow that is important to go over is related to the situation where the government decides it is time to start developing a new population registry. With the concept of fact registries, classic data migration from previous information system to a new one is not necessary anymore. Number one, business stakeholders agree about the feature scope of new population registry service, preferably using domain-driven design and involving technical stakeholders as necessary. Number two, engineering team has access to metadata and or anonymized data from population data related fact registry. Number three, engineering team develops a new information system. This includes functional logic that understands facts that are stored in fact registry, as well as ability to authenticate signatures of fact registry. Number four, entire functionality to the new population registry can be finished without any data migration required from existing population registry. Number five, live testing is possible with a new population registry as the population registry can listen to facts of population fact registry. Number six, new population registry can stream over all relevant historical facts of the population fact registry and build its own functional database as required by the new information system. Number seven, two population registries are able to work side by side, including a new population registry submitting new facts to the population registry. Number eight, once everything seems to be working as expected, the old population registry can be removed in entirety. The core benefits of this approach is decoupling of software development requirements of having to understand previous information systems and its process flow. As long as business stakeholders have understanding and if complex enough related documentation of business flows, then it is possible to develop new government services that replace old services without care of the complexity of the old service itself. You only care about understanding standardized and versioned fact documents in fact registries. Last but not least, fact registries are the only thing that is actually important to be backed up in data embassies and archived and national digital archives. Information systems that are able to understand and communicate with fact registries can be entirely open source and available in any public code repository. If a problem happens and original services are not available anymore, it would be possible to request fact registries data access from the data embassy and build a new instance of the service based on open source code and thus rebuild service functionality independently from physical territory. There are other issues regarding fact registries that require further research. Number one, if the fact registry data integrity is assured by blockchain, 
what happens if the government has a lawful requirement to erase a certain set of data? Would in that case the fact registry store data directly in blockchain and the whole chain is regenerated, which may defeat the purpose? Or are only fingerprints stored in blockchain and fact database itself has to remain without blockchain? What are the risks regarding either? Number two, there is an opportunity to also implement linked data concepts to connect various data sets between one another across fact registry. Moving on to the next section, 4.7, key takeaways. Transformation from monolithic architecture to event-driven microservice architecture can be a mammoth task for even the most experienced IT development team. It is not the goal of this paper to lay out in black and white that monoliths are evil and the only true way for building services is to do so with microservices. But it is important to make the right choice at the right time. But it is also important to understand that monolithic architecture in scale of a government is a huge risk. Estonia is still struggling with large monolithic databases and tightly coupled business services that were built up to 20 years ago. XROAD has enabled a far more flexible distributed government service architecture in Estonia, even as it connects monoliths between one another. This too is a risk that has to be kept in mind and managed well. But in order to get microservice architecture, it is important to establish a well-functioning cooperation between business stakeholders and IT development team. It is in designing and developing microservices, especially where problems of this cooperation can become a serious impediment. Domain-driven design is critical, and engineers should not write a single line of code before business design is clearly laid out. It is also important for the IT development team to experiment with microservices on a smaller scale before tackling a larger project. A key recommendation is to do so at the same time as investigating options of cloud platforms if cloud competencies in the IT development team are also lacking. Microservices and cloud make for ideal partners. In terms of government, data exchange needs addressing at two levels. Internally, within the administration sector and their information system or systems, then between administration sectors, where XROAD is required in Estonia, and then cross-border data exchange where no well-established solution exists yet. As such, until XROAD enables messaging solutions, then Apache Kafka is recommended to be tried out as a messaging platform, at least internally at first. While complex to set up and get running properly, its set of features matches well with expectations of government technologies, especially if message rooms are shared between multiple administration sectors. It is still important to keep in mind who is the master owner of core data, while distributed architecture allows for replication of data for functional purposes, it is important for the government to still know where the single source of truth is, if required. Last but not least, 
it is a strong recommendation for the X-Road development roadmap to consider the options of X-Road enabled messaging rooms as a feature for government technology stack. Moving on to our second to last section. It is 5.0, Conclusions. Remember the story. While the story is a story of an exception, because as parents rarely go into labor in a foreign country without being prepared, it is the duty of the government to be there for their citizens exactly when they need help in situations that citizens are not prepared for. Digital government ecosystem needs to support the whole range of citizen experience. As was written before, the most important role of technology is to automate the routines of our everyday lives so that we can focus on what's really important. Technology does not exist for the sake of technology. It has been a goal of this paper to focus on how we could assure that it is not technology nor ever will be technology that becomes an impediment for the success of the country and welfare of our citizens in Estonia as well as anywhere else. Digital government is huge. It consists of thousands of technical components and even more dependencies that have been built in the last few decades. It is increasingly more important to maintain and handle what already exists in digital government rather than what else can be built on top of it. Everything that we add to the digital government technology stack quickly becomes something that engineers and partners have to uphold and maintain. Digital government is constantly growing, offering more services and more components, and there is not a single administration sector where anything other than that is true. Cooperation between business stakeholders and technical stakeholders has been lacking and needs addressing to achieve better cooperation. Realization of the impact of Conway's law and utilizing domain-driven design will bring engineers and process owners closer together and end up with solutions that are understood by both parties the same way. Better planning will allow the government to test services sooner and also realize both success and failure in a safer way. Failing should not be feared as the impact of failing fast is much smaller than failing big, especially when it's too late. Business process modeling and workflow tools will allow for more decoupling of functional services from process services and also open up new opportunities for reuse across administration sectors and between. Estonian government web portal and digital services from administration sectors have been an immense success, but the expectation of citizens are changing. The future that involves virtual assistants that help navigate complex bureaucracy of the governments are unavoidable. It's only a matter of time. Next generation citizen experience will rely on them, but it is also important to make sure that there are fallback options. X-Road has been an immense success for the digital government of Estonia, but it is facing challenges of the expectations of a more decoupled and more data analysis driven world. If X-Road becomes easier to trial and test, easier to use regardless of the amount of services you have, 
and more open for asynchronous and message room-based solutions, such as XROOM, then XROAD will not only continue to be a foundational layer of digital government of Estonia, but possibly bring it to the next level. It also has to be understood that there is no silver bullet that solves everything for the next generation. As Thomas Edison said, vision without execution is hallucination. Thus, concepts need to be piloted. Hypothesis tested and heated discussions help to take us further. It is too expensive to do anything different. It is also important to understand that the high-level proposed solutions in this paper may have a difficult time working in parts without the whole concept in mind. It will be hard to adopt new architecture patterns without the involvement of business stakeholders, just as it will be difficult to adopt new laws and regulations and technical services quickly without the involvement of engineers. While it is also difficult to expect harmony between these two layers, there are numerous examples from both large and small-scale organizations where tight cooperation and understanding between those two layers is fundamental to success. This means that business owners, analysts, engineers, and software enthusiasts are encouraged to pick up some of those proposals herein and try them out on a small scale as proof of concept and thus build a new kind of awareness that will be invaluable in solidifying many of those proposed solutions in the future. If I would round up all of the proposed solutions in this paper, then it is difficult to avoid any other conclusion that our duty as business stakeholders and technical stakeholders is to do everything that we can to extend the lifespan of our future digital government services even a few years more compared to services today. While it may seem conservative at first, it is important to realize that the goal is to reduce the impact of cascading maintenance across all of the services that almost act as a compound interest on technical debt. Estonia will not have the funds, engineers, nor even partners to maintain digital government if we do any differently and continue to only focus on short-term goals. When working in the public sector, tackling huge projects with vast budgets and battling tight schedules, it is often difficult to keep in mind that the long-term benefit is often bigger value for the citizen. Short-term value, delivering a project quickly, just getting it out there, cutting corners, can be misguided. While it is true that the majority of public servants and especially engineers working for the public sector frequently switch jobs long before problematic software development rears its ugly head in digital government, we must not compromise. We need to understand that it is something for us that we are building and something for us that we want to be healthy. As future owners of companies, future parents, future receivers of health benefits, future pensioners wishing to travel the world, it is us who will be using those services that we are building today. We are paying for that development and maintenance with our taxes. As civil servants, it is our duty to make sure our technology stack can live longer, which can save millions of euros of investments. This can provide opportunities to build better services or perhaps invest the saved money 
into even better education systems where engineers of tomorrow are coming from. It is our responsibility to assure that these engineers are going to find healthier stack of digital government to evolve and then to take us further. And this concludes the reading of the Crystal VAR vision paper on next generation digital government architecture. It was quite a mouthful to read and I have no doubt it was just as much of an earful to listen to. And I like to think I learned a few things along the way, but I'll freely admit that much like Einstein and Mozart and Satoshi, a vast majority of this went way above my head. And there's probably only a few people in this world who can truly appreciate what's laid out in this document in one sitting. But maybe this reading will motivate a few of you to go out and actually read the document and, and research it and, and build from it. You know, use it as a kind of template for your own work. And whether you do or you don't, I appreciate you listening. And please kindly share this podcast and this episode with your network. And also leave a rating or a comment. Those are always great and they, they really help quite a bit in, in making the podcast better. Or if there's any guests or if there's any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.